morning, ladies. I feel a little bit sad about going home, to be quite honest. You know, I've met such a lot of lovely people that have become my friends. And uh, I'm a little bit sad about it. Can you hear me all right? Like that? That's a better? Okay. okay. <clears throat> now, in my first talk, we looked at the first verse in John 15, you may remember. Um, my father is the gardener. And we looked at God's tending and planting of us. And our main thought through what was in that talk that when we live in his very presence with an intimate relationship with him, and when we know him in every part of our life, we have the most extraordinary relationship with God. God our Father and us his child. God the perfect Father and us his child. I belong to him and he belongs to me. It's fantastic, isn't it? Today, we're looking at the first part of that verse, uh, Jesus' statement in verse 1, where he says, I am the vine, the true vine. I think I think it'll come up. Oh, there it is. And as I said to you on Friday night, I have been looking at the relational side of abiding in the vine this weekend. And Emma has been looking at the nitty-gritty practical side of it. And we saw that very powerfully, didn't we, in her talk, particularly yesterday. Um, it was so powerful, Emma. It was wonderful. And um, it was challenging about how we're going to bear much fruit, you know, whether we're on our front lines, whether we're this vine going over the wall, or whether we've got the torch in the dark tunnel, you know. And it, it, it just, you know, moved me incredibly. But for me, I'm... I'm, my brief is to do more of a relational thing with God. It's not about bearing fruit, really. It's about abiding. And Jesus said, I am the true vine. And they had left the upper room where he had shared the Passover with them, like they did every year. And he had washed their feet, he, especially Judas, do you know? He had um, predicted betrayal, and denial in, in, in John 13 to 16, in that discourse of Jesus's. He had comforted them by saying in John 14, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And he also promised the gift of the Holy Spirit so they would never feel that they were without him. They were never alone. And all that was in 13 and 14. And then he, in chapter 15, as we've known this weekend, he speaks about himself as the true vine. And it's interesting that all through his earthly ministry, he, he had used metaphors to define himself. Things that the people could understand, you know, as they looked around. He said, didn't he, I am the bread of life. He said, I'm the gate. He said, I'm the good shepherd. They saw shepherds. He's a good shepherd. And he said, I am the bread of life. I am the way. And so that they could understand. But now he makes the most powerful pronouncement. And as I said in my first talk, Israel was the vine. And we saw in Psalm 80 that God had brought his vine out of Egypt, planted it in the promised land. And later prophets like Isaiah had said that they had produced nothing but bad fruits. And exile was inevitable but in Jesus 
breathtaking statement. He's saying, I am now the true vine, the one in whom all God, God's promises are now resting, bringing blessing and salvation through me. God has said to Abraham right back in Genesis, he said, I have chosen you and I will bless you so that you can bless the nations. You can be the light of the world. You can be the salt of the earth. You can show the love of God to everybody around you, but they had failed him. And so Jesus came for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I wonder, if I think about this, if the disciples would have remembered the prophetic words of Isaiah in chapter 11, 1 to 3. This is what Isaiah said many, many centuries before Jesus came. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, David's line. He will bear fruit, a branch, capital B, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him at his baptism by John. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, power, the spirit of knowledge, which Jesus displayed throughout his whole life. This was a prophetic word from Isaiah about the true vine all that time before he came. It's amazing, isn't it? I told you yesterday about um, things I did in lockdown. One thing I did, which remains with me to this day. One day, it was a lovely day. We had lovely days in the lockdown, didn't we? And I went into the, into the aforementioned garden and um, I took my notebook and my Bible and I, looked, I took Matthew's Gospel and I looked at every prophetic word that was in that Gospel where Jesus had been um, prophesied about in the Old Testament which had been fulfilled in his life. Do you know how many there were? 33. 33 prophecies about Jesus in, the math, in Matthew's gospel alone. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And I tell you, I was so excited. Um, you, know, you, know, you know it's a prophetic word because it says, as was said by the prophet Isaiah. And then it tells you, you know, that the, and a couple of them was, Zechariah has said in 9.9, in Rejoice greatly. See your king comes to you with righteousness, having salvation gently and riding on a donkey. He was, he was prophesying about Palm Sunday. How on earth did he know that? And then we've got, um, Ze uh, no, that was Zephaniah 9.9. And then we've got that very famous one, Micah 5.2, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, a shepherd for his people. And we know very well, don't we? His home was in Nazareth. Why on earth was he saying? And he didn't only say Bethlehem. He said Bethlehem Epaphra. There were a couple of Bethlehems. He was so specific where he was going to come. And Jesus was there because of a Roman census. Micah was listening to the word, prophetic word of God. But I think for me, the most wonderful prophetic um, section is in Psalm 22, if you know it. It starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then that's in verse 1, and then it goes on in 7 and 8 to say, I find this incredible. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And that's exactly what the crowd was saying in Luke's gospel. You know, 
come down from there if you say who you are. Let God deliver you. And even the thief on the cross said, save yourself and us. How did Isaiah, how did the psalmist know that? He was prophesying about Jesus. And then there's also prophecies, prophecies about his death, that there would be a spear in his side, that his legs would not be broken. And you know what? They were describing Roman crucifixion. We know very well, don't we, that the, um, the uh, people of Israel, it was stoning. We know that from Acts of the Apostles, when Stephen was stoned. That was their method of execution. How on earth did they know that the Romans were going to come and Jesus was going to be crucified? They even prophesied in the Psalms that they would take his clothes and cast lots for them. But the one that I find the most exciting of all is in the book of Job. It's got to be in the book of Job because we know what terrible things are going on for him. And he says, he cries out in verse 9, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 3, if only there was someone to arbitrate, to mediate between me and God, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me. And then this is what he says in chapter 16, 19 to 21. I could almost cry. Even now, he says, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears. A man pleading for his friend. He's talking about Jesus. How did he know that? And then perhaps the most well-known one in the book of Job. But I know, he said, that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. Beautiful, isn't it? And why do I know that that was a prophecy that came true in the New Testament? Because in Romans 8, the one about Jesus being an intercessor, Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, whispering our name into God. I love it. And Hebrew talks about his intercessory work as well. Job was looking down the corridors of ahead of history and he saw Jesus, his redeemer, his friend, his intercessor, his arbiter, his mediator, his advocate. He saw all of it. And that's the one that's crowned with glory and honour and majesty and might and says to us, I am your true vine. Thank you, Jesus. As I was doing this bit of research, in the garden, it reminded me of the two on the Emmaus Road. You know, they were heartbroken. You know, oh, we had wished, we had hoped. They said, it's all, gone, it's all gone completely wrong. We had hoped it had been, it'd been the one. And they're crying and moaning down the road. And sometimes, and then somebody comes alongside them. And he take, it says in Luke, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them all that was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He, he, he did with them what I've just done with you. And their response was, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the way? And when I was sitting in that garden, I thought, do you know what? My heart's burning within me. I'm so excited about all this. So that was my first point. The second one is abiding, abiding in the vine. Oh, there it is. So the whole of John 15 is about how we abide in that vine, how we're connected, how we've been grafted in, and the implication of that abiding, which Emma brought to us so beautifully yesterday. 
he says in verse, five, in verse four to five, abide in me and I will abide with you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We can't do any of those things that Emma encourages us to do. If we're not abiding in the vine, if, without me, we can do nothing. And you know, to me, that is good news. Because I'm sick to death of struggling in my own strength to try and do, do things. It's absolutely exhausting, isn't it? And it does never work. It never works for me anyway. I feel discouraged and, fail, and failing if I'm struggling away. And, and the feeling of not being good enough when that happens, you know? And the comparison trap. Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. And all the time, the life of Jesus, you know, the sap that's running through the vine is available to us. Uh, Lucy Pepier, who is, is a, a dear, dear friend, actually, um, she wrote a book called The Disciple. And she said this quite simply. We are, not, we are not the source. We are the conduit. Jesus is the source. He's all the knowledge and wisdom and beauty and everything of that. We are the channels out through which it comes. Jesus said later in this very discourse in John 14, 15 and John 16, 5, I'm going away, but I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. The Father will send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who lives in you, and will take of the things of Christ and reveal them to you. In other words, he will make Jesus real to us every day when we are abiding in the true vine. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So we need to abide. If we want to be useful for God, we need to abide in him. And there are many things that we can do that won't bear fruit because it's without Jesus. But when we are grafted into Jesus, the Holy Spirit produces those fruits that we heard about yesterday, love, joy, peace, goodness, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This next slide is the four questions. Can we have one question at a time? Is that impossible to do? Don't worry if we can't. Don't worry. The first thing is, what does it mean for us today? Don't read the others. <laughs> it means that no matter how much outward-facing fruit we have in our lives, like decorations on a Christmas tree, without Jesus, they are not going to be real and they're not going to be everlasting. Amen. What they're going to be is like the fruits, the um, decorations that we take off of the Christmas tree in January, put up into the loft, and leave them there until the next Christmas. They're not going to, they're not going to work. Jesus talks about fruit that remains. And it means that it's going to be the only way to have this beautiful relationship with Jesus. The second one, how do we abide? I read this quote from Bishop J.C. Ryle, and you know, it summed up for me all that I wanted to say, so I'm going to read it out to you. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, 
resting in him, pouring out our hearts to him, coming to him as our fountain of life and strength, our chief companion and best friend, to have his words abiding in us, to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds, and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily lives. That's it, isn't it? He talks about making a habit of close communion, being in a rhythm of fellowship with Jesus. He's our best friend. We want to spend as much time with him. I love this sense of leaning and resting and pouring out our hearts and drinking from his great resource, you know, his fountain. It's about knowing and coming to Jesus in a profound way and knowing and loving God's word so that we come become changed and transformed. One lady asked me at the table, um, I think it was yesterday, she said, are you going, you're still going out to Ashton Court? Because I think I came, I told you once, some of you are nodding, about, um, um, about seven years ago, I went through a really rough patch, rough patch. I, I spent some of you, you know, when you feel like you're a little bit like, um, uh, not, not very useful, and you don't seem to be appearing very useful to other people either, you know, and you don't get much encouragement, and, and, you know, you get all, you know, start overthinking things, and you get discouraged as anything, and what I did when I felt I was in that situation, that I wasn't being heard, I wasn't being respected, you know, all, of the, all about me stuff, you know, I thought to myself, I'm going to have to withdraw from this, I can't stay in it, you know, it's, it's hurting me too much, and I felt God say, Spend some time with me. Come and talk to me about it. So what I did was, we have a lovely park in Bristol called Ashton Court. I went up to the Ashton Court, and um, it was fine in the summer. It wasn't so good in the winter. And, um, and I, I used to just sit there sometimes in my car, and in the very beginning, I said nothing to God, and God said nothing to me. I was there for three hours. On the Monday morning, I, went, I thought, I'm going to start the week with God. Nine till twelve, nothing, and that happened for a while, and then I started to sit down and cry and speak to God about it, and then I started to hear something coming back. Then lockdown came, and so I made my sanctuary in my sitting room, and it was wonderful because there, if I wanted to, I could sing and shout, and if I wanted to lay out on the floor and praise to God, I could. I couldn't do that in Ashton Court, and and. <laughs> They would have thought, I they would have called uh, the, uh, what, what do you call, pardon? Yeah, yeah, people in white coats, that's it. Um, but, you know, that, that was seven years ago, and through lockdown and through the last couple of years, I can only say to you that Jesus and me, I could cry, actually, have become the dearest of friends. I go in that room on a Monday morning at nine o'clock, and I say to him, God, I'm going to just start off by telling you all the things that have happened this week that are going around in my head, you know, and I'm going to get all the distractions out of the way. And I do there. And then I start with my Bible. And that Bible has come alive to me. I mean, you can witness that, can't you? Um, it's come alive to me. Every time I open that book, it speaks to me about something. And then on the floor is repentance because of something, you know. It's wonderful. And then I've got a prayer book. Because I want to pray for people in that time as well. And if I say to somebody, I will pray for them, I will pray for them. 
and there was somebody I was sitting with at breakfast this week, uh, uh, this weekend, and she was telling me her story, and I just felt, oh, I must pray. And she'll go in my book when I get home, you know. What I'm saying all that for you is not to, you know, not for any praise. I'm saying to you because it is the best thing you could ever do. What are the results of abiding? We're getting to the end. Um, First one is glorify God. Verse 8 says, By abiding in me is my Father glorified, showing yourself to be my disciples. There is so much heartache and suffering and outrage in the world, isn't there? But throughout it all, to show that Jesus is the one who can bring sadness, uh, can bring joy out of sadness, can bring light in the darkness, can bring hope in despair and love from hatred. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's no point of it otherwise. Secondly, love. The first of the fruits of the Spirit. As the Father have loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Make yourself at home in my love. I think Emma mentioned that. And that's the only way we can love in difficult situations particularly. The third one is joy. Verse 11. These things I have I spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. I was thinking, the time when I met the most joyful people in my life was when Rob and I, we'd been in Hong Kong at a conference, Rob had been speaking and we had visited Jackie Pullinger and Rob had always had a real desire to go to China and this was before China had been opened, you know, Um, it was still, it was about a couple of months before the Tiananmen Square massacre, so that will tell you what it was like there. And we managed to get, to get a ticket on the train to go from Hong Kong to, to China. And there, there was a, a Christian organization there that heard that we were going and said, oh, while you're going in, will you take a few Bibles and a few Christian literature in? You know, you, you, you might have a job to get them through, but just, I mean, will you have a try? He said, yeah, we'll have a try. They never told us any of the difficulties, you know. And so um, off we went. We had rucksacks with um, clean pants and a toothbrush, and the rest was Bibles and Christian literature. It was everything we could pack in there. We got through. We delivered to beautiful persecuted cells in Guangzhou, and then we went up to um, Beijing. And we were being observed up in Beijing. We were staying in the university. And our courier said, we can't go in, in the day to visit this particular cell. They said, you, we have to go to, on bikes in the middle of the night. Three of us cycling on this Chinese terrain across this, yeah. I tell you what, I got to that place, this ramshackle building, which was the home of the leader of the cell. He had been a, a surgeon in the hospital. He was a Christian. He had lost his job, his, his, his finance, his living... Members of his family had been murdered. Yeah. We, and, then, and there was stacked out in this building all his Christian, you know, the cell, this, these Christian friends who had experienced exactly the same thing. We went in there. I'm telling you this. We took out the, the Bibles. We put them on the floor in the middle. 
and the books. I have never seen so much joy in all my life. What they were going through, the persecution, they were joyous. And I was completely humbled by them. And at the end, when they asked us if we would pray for them, I said to Rob, no. I said, they need to pray for us. They need to pray for us. And I have never forgotten them. Right, I've forgotten where I am. Um, Jesus is not speaking of some fairy tale happiness. He's not speaking of this sort of joy that's, you know, like we see on the telly sometimes, I've been watching the odd Christmas movie. Honestly, you've never seen any such rubbish in your life. It, it's, from the beginning to the end, you know, it is never true to real life. It never happens like that. And um, there's so much, you know, there's so much despair there, uh, in the world and, and you can't be joyful. And I am very encouraged by Romans 8 when I read... We know that the whole creation has been groaning right up to this present time, looking for the final redemption when God brings everything back together. It's going to be like that. It's going to be a joyless world. But we have got a joy because we know that it's all going to come out right in the end because of our Jesus. But for now, we're not exempt from disaster and sadness, but we have the promise of his presence and of his joy, and we are grafted into the one, Jesus, who endured the cross, and he despised the shame, and now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, hallelujah. So, abiding in him, glorifying God, love, joy, the last one, knowing Jesus, it's about knowing him, our vine and our king, my Emmanuel, God with me. And so often, encounters with with God with Jesus in the Old Testament, in the Bible generally, always resulted in transformation. And I came across Ezekiel's experience in chapter 1, and this is what it says in verse 23. High above the throne was a figure like that of a man. Brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him that when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking to me. I don't experience visions like that. I never have. But what I do know is that inner sense, that knowing that Jesus is with me, Jesus is for me, Jesus has died for me, Jesus loves me, all of it. And I sometimes can cry out with Paul, I want to know Christ. I want to know him, his power of his resurrection. And if it be that I share in his sufferings in order to get to know him better, then so be it. So be it. It's about drawing alongside and pouring his wisdom into my life, spelling the fear and the doubt and the boredom and the darkness. I'm just finishing now. I came across um, a little story which did make me laugh, actually, about darkness and doubt. It was about a little boy, and um, he was afraid of the dark. And his mother said to him, love, just go out in the back garden and bring in that brush. And he said, I can't go out there, Mum. I'm too frightened of the dark. And she smiled reassuringly at me. She said, no, she said, she said, you don't have to be afraid of the dark. She said, Jesus is out there. 
Jesus is with, will be with you. And the boy looked hard at his mother and he said, are you sure that he's out there? And his mother said, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced he's there. He's everywhere and he's ready to help us. So the little boy, he went to the back door, he sort of opened it, cracked it open, peered out of it, and his mother heard him say, Jesus, if you are out there, pass me that brush. <laughs> where, where are we biding, abiding? In, where are we in this abiding process today? Every single one of us. The word abiding means to me to think of a place I live, the place I call home, 162 Westbury Road. And God wants us to be at home with him secure and comfortable and protected, a place where we can rest before we get down to the vital part of bearing fruit that we heard about yesterday. And Henry, Black, Henry Black, Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God, and he wrote this. We often say to people, don't just sit there, do something. But God's, in God's vineyard, it's don't just do something, sit there, sit there. And that is only initially. It is not the excuse for us to be lazy and idle and half-hearted about what, what, what we heard about yesterday. We have to be right out there doing that. But we have to have been prepared there in that sitting place, like Mary. Like Mary. What Jesus is saying is don't, don't just stop and spend some good times with me. Stop and be close enough to lean on me, to connect with me in a meaningful way. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you and we need that in times when our burdens are unbearable. When we have huge sadness over broken relationships and anxious, even over the present economic crisis. And I want to close now with a beautiful hymn. And I just say this, when I, I wasn't a Christian until I came to Jesus when I was 16, just from nothing. And the only hymns I had ever experienced were hymns in school. And the one hymn that from the assembly, you know, and the one hymn that I remembered we sang, this is going back a few years, I'm telling you. Um, it was immortal, invisible, God only wise, light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. I thought, what is that all about? What I want to you to listen to in a minute now is the first song that I heard when I became a Christian and I went to this beautiful church where I was where I was became a follower of Jesus and this was the song that I heard and loved and cried and you know what I, do, I don't hear it these days I never hear it but when I was making this preparing this I thought that's the song I'm going to end with so here it is I heard the voice of Jesus say Come unto me and rest. Lay down, a weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living waters, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. 
I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise and all thy days be bright. I came to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun, and in the light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. <laughs>